Okay, one of the things that we love about Calvary is that our mission is clear, that we want to make disciples and empower leaders and multiply churches, and we're, we're trying to do that. I appreciate your part in that as you pray and give and watch God work in the lives of people. I want to show you a picture that about a year ago, we hired these four young Bible college graduates, and these are... Um, student ministry leaders across our three campuses. That's Patrick and Jake and Matthew, uh, Solomon. <laughs> yeah, what's his name? Solomon and uh, Brody. And these guys have been with us for about a year. And uh, we're, that was a day in Estes where I spent with them learning together questions. What does it mean to be a pastor? And uh, we're praying that God's going to raise up men and women at Calvary who will go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And, uh, Today, we have Patrick, who leads our high school ministry. He's going to open the word for an unsung hero in the book of Nehemiah. I want to pray for him and pray for our time together. Let's bow our heads. God, thank you for the privilege of being together today around the word of God and around um, the celebration of our life in Jesus. Now we pray that the word of God would be clear to our hearts and that your Holy Spirit will be the voice we hear most clearly to say to us the things that you want us to hear. May the response of our hearts be yes to you and obedience to your word and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what we pray for together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, so welcome, Patrick. Thanks. <laughs> hey. Good morning. Like Tom said, I'm Patrick. I lead the high school ministries, serve the students and their families, and I love my job here. I moved to Boulder in 2012 to attend the University of Colorado. Let's go Buffs. <laughs> I actually became a Christian my freshman year at CU through the Navigator Ministry, and then in 2013 started attending Calvary and just fell in love with the intergenerational, Bible, Christ-centered focus of Calvary. And I've loved it. We ended up, my wife and I got married in 2016, and we moved away so I could finish a degree at Bethlehem College in Minneapolis. But the whole time, we were just waiting for the day we could move back to Boulder, and I could work here at Calvary. So we got to move back, and I'm working here, and it's been a wonderful first year, and I'm excited for the years to come. As Tom mentioned, we're going to be reading uh, and learning from a story in the book of Nehemiah. So you can turn there in your Bible. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. It, the book of Nehemiah starts on page 226. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little background for why I chose Nehemiah as my unsung hero. I think in the last two years, one of the things we've dealt with is just catastrophe after catastrophe, almost to the point where it seems like I expect in the back of my mind something terrible to happen almost every day. And it wasn't even until a few months ago when I was talking to Jake, we share an office, about this sense of just anxiety in the back of our minds about, man, what, what could happen? Because there were so many things that came and went that affected not me directly, but those around me directly, whether it was the Marshall Fire or COVID. It was so hard to watch those around me be affected. 
and kind of feel that mix of thankfulness that I wasn't, but also that sense of tension of it could be. And I, I realized that there was kind of this spectrum of response as I thought about catastrophe and how I was responding to it. There was this one side of me that kind of went into this prayer paralysis that just said, I, I can't do anything. And so God, I need you. I, I'm actually going to demand that you do something here because this is just too overwhelming of a circumstance that I just, I feel frozen all the way over to this overcompensating atheism where I was, felt like I just turned God off and would just do what needed to be done and just work and just get whatever I thought needed to be done to overcome this latest catastrophe. And so as I was thinking about this message, I wanted to come up with a way of that. Neither of those responses seemed good to me, either stuck in fear, demanding that God work, or just ignoring God and doing everything myself. And that's why I wanted to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, it's the final story in the Old Testament. It's the latest story that we get. And it begins with a man named Nehemiah, who's living in the Persian capital, the imperial capital of Susa, that's about 900 miles away from Jerusalem, his home, where he's been. And this is after the exile has officially ended. People have gone back to Jerusalem in the previous book, Ezra, and they started to rebuild it. And it was great. There's finally seems like at the end of the Old Testament, there's this break for the people of God where things can finally go back to the way they should have been. But as we enter the book of Nehemiah, in verse 3, someone shows up. One of Nehemiah's brothers shows up and says to Nehemiah, because Nehemiah asks, how is Jerusalem? What is it like now that things have started to be rebuilt? And they said to me, Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And then we get Nehemiah's first response to this unimaginable catastrophe. This thing that after 70 years, God said he would bring the people back. And then there's this new unexpected note of tragedy that the city that was being rebuilt has been burned down again. It turns out that the Persian Empire had originally let them return, but then said, ah, oh, we don't want another powerful city rising in the midst of our empire, so all of the neighbors can go in and destroy the city. And that's what they did. The neighbors of Jerusalem came in and ruined the city anew. And that's where we get Nehemiah's first response in verse four. Chapter one, verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's first response to catastrophe is mourning and prayer. 
He goes to the Lord fasting to take time away from everything else and to pray, to try and process what it would be like, just trying to figure out why this has happened. And if you were concerned, or if you had the thought that the biblical man is this stoic, unfeeling, unmovable rock, Nehemiah is a really powerful counterexample to that. He weeps and mourns for days. And then there's this shift of fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we get this beautiful prayer in verses 5 to 11, that if you're familiar with the Acts structure of how to pray, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, this prayer is a really beautiful example of how to do that. Because in verse 4, Nehemiah just spends a sentence adoring God. Remember, he's been weeping and mourning, but he praises God for who he is. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then in verses six and seven, he shifts to confession. He acknowledges that this catastrophe didn't just happen randomly, but has come about because God said that would happen when his people rebelled. And the lesson that Nehemiah is really remembering in verses six and seven is that the wages of sin really is death and destruction. And he knows that he himself, his family, the people of Israel are guilty. He knew the commands of God and the ways that they failed to live up to them. And in verses eight and nine, he shifts to the third part of the Acts prayer, the piece of thanksgiving, where he goes back to the first words of God to Moses to say, Lord, remember, verse eight, remember the word that you commanded your servant saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. He remembers how good God was and remembers the promises of God and gives thanks for that. And then to finish his prayer, he has this supplication, this last piece where he asks one thing of the Lord, that he would have success and that God would grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, we don't, we don't know who the man is at first, but then Nehemiah tells us right at the end of verse 11, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer to the king, for us, it would be like the chief of staff to the president, someone who's appointed by the president under the power of the president, except in the Persian empire, the king had all the right in the world to just kill his cupbearer without any pushback, any accountability, anything at all. So Nehemiah is in this incredible place of authority and kind of this terrifying position of life and death. And so, Four months pass at the beginning of chapter two. And Nehemiah and the king are at this party that the king is throwing. Nehemiah is serving wine to the king. And we realize that those, that prayer right there, 
It's a summary of what happens over the course of four months. Now, it doesn't mean that he was praying this exact prayer over and over and over again, but we get a picture of the kinds of things Nehemiah was praying and processing through for four months. So Nehemiah shows up at this party and is sad. And all of us think that's understandable. He's been mourning for four months for his city that's been destroyed. But to be sad in the king's presence at a party was a capital offense. And so the king asks, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then, <laughs> verse two ends with, and then I was very much afraid. <laughs> and Nehemiah speaks to the king and he says, Lord, I, why should not my face be sad when the city, my, the place my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then we get to verse four. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is just this short moment in the middle of a conversation that Nehemiah prays. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Because Nehemiah, even though his first response to this catastrophe was prayer, shows that it's not just prayer, but it's actually him going out and working that is going to do it. So he comes to the king, and even one Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, said that it seems like Nehemiah wasn't waiting for an opportunity so much as he creates an opportunity by showing his sadness in the presence of the king. Nehemiah then goes on in the rest of these verses 6 to 8 to lay out this plan of you give me letters to the governors and to the keeper of timber that I could rebuild the gates and the temple of the city of my fathers. Nehemiah shows that he had been preparing. He had been working for this moment of opportunity, even in the midst of him praying and mourning his city. He's praying and working. And that's what we see throughout the rest of the book, is this beautiful combination of Nehemiah going to God in prayer, asking that God would act powerfully, and then Nehemiah showing up to work hard, to do things well. And this section ends in verse 8, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so Nehemiah gets what he wants. He shows up with a potentially capital offense to a king's party and gets the answer he needed because the good hand of God was upon him. And so he goes. Nehemiah takes what's necessary. He gathers the resources, gathers the people, goes to Jerusalem, sees the people there in utter ruin, sneaks into the city at night so that he can see how much devastation has happened, and then starts organizing. He says the first thing that needs to happen is we need to rebuild the walls. 
A city without walls in those days was useless. It was a place of just utter insecurity and terror because there wasn't any sort of rule of law. There was only this rule of force. So walls meant that there could be life, there could be structure, there could be actual human flourishing. So Nehemiah organizes and they start building these walls. It's incredible how quickly he organizes everyone. And in chapter three, you can go through and read the list of all the people Nehemiah got together to organize and build the walls of Jerusalem again. But remember how at the beginning we said that Jerusalem had just been burned down by its neighbors. It had just been attacked by those around it. Those neighbors hadn't gone away and they show up in throughout the book, but in chapter four, they show up with an army to sit just outside the gates of Jerusalem. And they start taunting and jeering the people that are rebuilding the wall. They start making fun of it. They say, oh, are they gonna revive stones out of heaps and rubble? They're gonna put up ash as the wall, but we don't have to worry about that because if a fox jumps up on that wall, it's gonna fall apart. And Nehemiah takes time in the middle of this to realize that we need to pray. And there are prayers after prayers. In short, in chapter 4, verse 4, in chapter, five, verse five, chapter 4, verse 5, he has this prayer. And then, verse 6 is, we built the wall, and the wall was joined together. It's half its height, so the people had a mind to work. Pray and work. And it comes together beautifully in chapter 4, verse 9, when it says, and we prayed to God and set a guard as a protection against them, their enemies, day and night. This is such a beautiful picture of how Nehemiah, in the realizing of opposition to a good thing he's doing, prays and works. He doesn't ask God just to solve the problem for him, but he does ask God to help and seeks a way to protect the people of <laughs> the people of Jerusalem that are building this wall. And I think the lesson from this moment of opposition is that in the midst of a good response that Nehemiah is having of depending on God and working hard, he encounters stiff opposition. And I think it's even the lesson for us is, especially when we have good intentions, we encounter opposition. I think of just the thousand and one reasons that come up as distractions or as things that could seem more urgent than a good project or a good thing that I'm working on, or even the lawsuits that have delayed just the cleanup from the martial fire. It seems that even in the midst of really good things, obstacles always arise. And this isn't even the last obstacle that Nehemiah faces. He, in chapters four and five, it goes on. He encounters this internal economic issue where rich Israelites were giving loans to poor Israelites and then charging extraordinary interest rates so that people who are working on the wall have to leave 
to go work vineyards, to go work their farms so that they can pay off these loans. So he has to deal with that. False prophets come and try and trick Nehemiah into ruining his reputation before the people. Those obstacles and oppositions come at the greatest moment of work. Because in chapter 4, verse 21, there's this picture that we labored at the work. And half of them, the workers, held spears from the break of day, the break of dawn, until the stars came out. In verses before, it says that men worked with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other because they were so afraid that this army encamped outside these half-built walls would attack them. And I just want to point out that this long heart, these long work days, this season where it seems like there's not a lot of praying, not a lot of quiet times, not a lot of time spent with the Lord, it actually is meant to match those extended months of prayer and fasting at the beginning of the book. So that even though there are these seasons where it seems like one of prayer or working is the focus, they match each other in their intensity and in their duration so that there are no lives that are built well without praying and working. And so Nehemiah deals with these problems again and again. And he has these moments again and again where you see a problem come up and Nehemiah will either pray to God and then solves the problem. Or he solves the problem and then thanks God for it. It's this beautiful picture of, and that's, I think, what's so interesting about the book of Nehemiah. It's written in the first person. And so you get these moments where Nehemiah is writing his story and he says, and then I prayed to God. Or he just says, but God, strengthen my hands. These moments where he prays and works in the midst of crazy opposition. And then in chapter six, verse 15, after all the obstacles, the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days, in 52 days, they finished the walls of a city that had been burned down. I just, I marveled at that number afresh recently, just having looked at what happened in our community and realizing that in 52 days, Nehemiah praying for an extended time and working incredibly hard did something incredible. But though he did something incredible, I think the next part of the verse is so helpful. Because when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they had perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. At the end of this incredible work, the enemies aren't afraid of Nehemiah. They aren't afraid of the people of Jerusalem. The enemies learned how great God is. That, that's the power of the good response to catastrophe, of praying and working well to see that even those outside see that it's not 
the people that are great, but it's God who's great. Because the reality is we find ourselves in a situation like Nehemiah. In the Great Commission, Christ gives all believers this command. He says, go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. It's this incredibly high calling to say, oh, okay, people who, like, we're supposed to go out and make people who follow Jesus in every nation, and we're supposed to baptize them, and then teach them to obey all that I've commanded, all that Jesus commanded. I'm still working on that. I don't know about you. There are probably some older folks here that could teach me so much, that need to teach me so much about what it means to obey all that Jesus taught. But in those verses, Jesus doesn't just leave us with the command, with the work to do. Those verses begin with, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And end with Jesus saying, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So even though our work in a culture that seems so hostile to the message of Jesus, even the simplest truths about Christ, we see that Jesus is with us that there is no work too impossible because he is the one that is doing it with us. And so we get an even fuller picture of what it means to have the Lord with us, living in us as his spirit and empowering us to do this work that he had done before and that he's still doing in all the lives of those around us. So as we go out this week, I hope that as we encounter opportunities to share about Jesus, as we hear about the really honestly discouraging things that are being said, that are being taught, that are being spread around in our culture, that we would be able to look at honestly the catastrophe that is our world and know that God is with us. We can pray and ask anything of him And he's called us to work hard for his name and for his glory. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for an example of what it means to depend on you for everything. Thank you so much for an example of what it means to work so hard for your sake Lord, thank you so much for just the incredible promises that you are with us always, even until the end of the age. And I ask, Lord, that even on this 4th of July weekend, you would move powerfully through us to reach out and encourage those that need encouragement, to give hope to the hopeless, and to remember, Lord, that you have called us to a work that, though it can seem impossible to us, is something you are excited and delighted to invite us into so that we wouldn't merely just survive as your people in the midst of 
ruins, but that we would really be able to see a new and better kingdom built by your power and through our work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.